Flat Out RC time, the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name is Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. Now, really enjoyable episode of the Flat Out RC podcast this week. And remember, don't forget to subscribe. If you're here now, press that subscribe button uh, and uh, make sure that you stay tuned into the upcoming episodes of Flat Out RC, and there's plenty more on the horizon. This episode is a good one because we're talking gliding. We have one of Australia's best competitive glider pilots in Marcus Stent joining me, and Marcus just has a knack of explaining things really, really well. So if you want to know how to become a better glider pilot, how to pick thermals, that kind of thing, stay tuned because Marcus is joining us. But before we get into my chat with Marcus, let's have a look at what's been on my mind. I was fortunate to get to the flying field uh, this weekend or last weekend, and uh, it it was a really foggy day, <laughs> really foggy day. You know, one of those days where you get to the field and you know that it's pretty foggy, dead calm, so you know it's going to be great flying conditions, those winter flying conditions. But and you, you hope that that fog is going to lift. Well, it lifted everywhere else except where I was at the flying field, and so. We had to wait a bit for the fog to lift. Uh, we had a few guinea pigs go up with foam planes and stuff to test the the uh, the fog height to see um, what the visibility was like, including some guys. If you're following the Flat Out RC Instagram page, you would have seen me put up some uh, some stories of uh, a couple of uh, glider guys um, tugging each other up uh, with their scale gliders. And I'll tell you what, some of their launches, you got a bit worried that they couldn't see where they were going, but they were in total control. and managed everything really really well but it was awesome conditions to fly in uh even though you couldn't fly very high but i i took my 3d hobby shop bigfoot up that i've had i bought off a friend marty morgan actually i sold it to him when i had 3d hobby shop planes for sale and then i bought it back off him uh and that was i really enjoyed that uh but also managed to fly my radio controlled paramotor my opal paramodels uh paramotor uh and because it, 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 they're perfect for when they're very still days and it was perfect conditions for flying the paramotor around. But you you got to spend a little bit of time just getting getting the trim of, of the uh, the paramotor right. And what I mean by that is the brake lines, the rear lines that connect to the back of the wing, uh, that connect to the arms of the pilot. There's a pilot that moves his arms up and down to steer left and right. And you've got to get the length of the lines right. So there's a bit of uh, mucking around. I hadn't, hadn't flown it for over a year, so I had to remember what I had to do. But... Uh, it got me thinking this week about what categories of aeroplanes do you fly? Now, are you the kind of person that likes to fly a lot of different things or you're really narrow focusing on I fly jets or I fly gliders or scale planes, whatever? Me, I have this problem in life that there's so many things that I enjoy doing and there's so many things I want to experience. And I always say to people that uh, I'll, I'll never be good at one thing because there are too many things that I want to have a go at. So I can only ever become average at a lot of things. And I'm not going to go through all the list of things that I'm average at, but there's a big list of things that I'm pretty average at, but I've experienced them. And uh, when it comes to my model flying, it's no different. And I was thinking about my my hangar and what I've got, you know. So I just mentioned I've got a radio control paramotor. Why would I have a radio control paramotor? And then the other end of the hangar, I've got a turbine jet. Uh, and I think it's that diversity and just... Uh, as I will always mention, I get bored very easily and just being able to try different things. So I've got radio control helis, uh, jet, 
aerobatic planes. Got, got quite a number of aerobatic planes. That's probably my dominant category. If I had to pick one, it'd probably be aerobatics. Got discus launch gliders, F5J glider. Uh, I've got foamies, like stole planes. Love stole planes. Like my Bigfoot and the, uh, got an FFMS Cub uh, from the magazine days. Um, I've even got a radio control yacht. Uh, got radio control cars. Um, I can't think of any other. I don't have a radio control motorbike. I've got a real motorbike, but I don't have a radio control one, but that could be fun. Uh, but there's really, I've got drones, sorry, I've got FPV drones, I've got DJI drone, of course, for filming, but I've got the DJI FPV drones, some racing drones, that kind of thing. I think I've covered almost every base, I can't think of anything else, but that's because I like to try different things, and that's why I can't be good at one thing, because I'm just chopping and changing all the time, and some people would sit there and say that's a negative thing, but the way that I view it is that I get to experience these different things. I can appreciate drone flying and FPV, it's it's an awesome experience, it's totally different experience of flying you know say aerobatics or, or a glider i love gliding i love the idea of gliding the, the the peacefulness of gliding and that hunt for that thermal that invisible thing that you can't see uh so where do you sit uh anyway look if, you, if you're very focused on one aspect if you know if you're a glider guy like we've got marcus stent joining us shortly and he's a glider guy and that's predominantly what he'll focus on and he becomes very very good at it and i really appreciate people that that can do that and i wish i could do that but I'll keep on chopping and changing, I think, from category to category because that's what I enjoy doing. So where do you sit? Which side of the fence do you sit on? Time for guest time, and this week's guest is Marcus Stent. Now, Marcus, as I mentioned earlier, is a glider guy. He's a, he, he specializes in competition, so he flies... Uh, F5J is probably his predominant category at the moment, but he's been known as an F3K, which is discus launch. So the electric launch, you know, thermal gliding uh, is F5J and then F3K being discus launch. And he's been on the scene for a very long time flying gliders and really a glider specialist. And you know, I always say I love gliding and, and was really fortunate to get Marcus because I've, I've been on my radar for a long time and the moon's aligned. I managed to have a chat with him and, uh, so Marcus Stent, talking gliders. Now, stay tuned because he really uncovers some secrets to, to good gliding and uh, something that I was just sitting and listening to uh, and enjoying and learning from. So here's my chat with Marcus Stent. Well, I've had this man on my guest list for a long time. We're going to be talking a lot about gliders today and there's nobody better than I can think of than having Marcus Stent on the Flat Out RC podcast. Marcus, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, Marcus, as I mentioned, you're, you're a gliding guru and we're going to really sink our teeth into it. But uh, I don't know a lot about your history in aero modelling. So where did it all start? I think I've always enjoyed aircraft ever since I was uh, a young tacker and built lots of plastic models, loved aircraft. And then um, when I was 15, I was given a glider as a present. And um, I haven't looked back since. Um, I've tried power planes at different times and helicopters and just love the challenge of gliding and it's just been with me the whole time. Now, what was that glider, that first glider? Aeroflight Trident. I was going to say Aeroflight because I'll tell you what, that brand has really started a lot of us in the hobby, hasn't it? I think my first yeah. glider I got given as a present was a, was a free flight model, an Aeroflight Nomad. And then later I got an Albatross and an Aries and whatever. But uh, mm. we have to thank Aeroflight for making those kits. And, and 
So did you build that kit yourself? No, it was actually a neighbour. Um, I used to go around there every weekend and borrow the the error modelling magazines he had and ogle at his plane. And he actually went through a divorce and was going to throw it out. And he, he knew I was so keen, he brought it round, ready to go. It was in pretty bad nick, but um, it flew. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember saying to my dad, oh, can I get a power plane? <laughs> well, why don't you try this first? And I was like, oh, okay. And we went to the Bendigo Gliding Club at the time. And uh, I saw a glider going up on a on a bungee, and I was just hooked. Yeah, right from the very beginning. There's something about seeing gliders being launched on the bungee because I've got a similar sort of sort of story seeing gliders being launched at Elstonwick Park down here in Melbourne, and and off the bungee and just being fascinated with it and thinking, oh, you don't have to refuel it, you don't have to worry about propellers or anything. You just pull the bungee back and let it go, and off you go again. I thought you could just do that all day. You know, when you think yeah. about it, you know, compared to what we do with um with powered planes, and so so it sounds like you went straight to a club very early on. Mm, correct, and I was very lucky. I had such a a good club. Like the the people were genuinely good people. There was probably a dozen in the club, and then they just flew purely gliders. Mm. Um, a power club on one side of Bendigo, and a glider club on the other, and. Um, just got hooked on the gliding and over the years people have asked me why and it's really the challenge the challenge of gliding has kept my interests going because you never ever ever achieve like the ultimate goal there's always something new to learn there's always a challenge to overcome and I guess that's how I'm wired I agree that's that's why I like gliding I always say that um you can never get bored of it because it's like going fishing. You don't know. You can't see what's under the water, and you're hoping for the best, but you're trying to think where you need to put your boat so you can get the have the best chance to catch that fish. And it's the same with gliding: is that mm. you're reading the environment and trying to understand where the lift might be and where it might come from, and you can't see it, but you live in hope. I always say that when you fly glider, you're always living in hope, and that 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 means you can't get bored because it, you're you're sitting on the edge of your seat for the whole flight in a kind of way. Yeah, yeah, very true. So you started off with the Trident. No doubt that was a two-channel glider. Mm -hmm. Where did you progress after that? Yeah, I bought a a Big Birdie kit and um, built it on a bit of old timber on my – actually on my bed. I'd have it underneath the bed, pull it out, stick it on, run the super glow everywhere and the epoxy. I remember getting it on the bed one day and getting (laughs) told her by my mum. That's a – um, there was two or three other kits. I did a ricochet uh, and a step three. Um, quite popular kits back in the eighties. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Cause we're, we're similar vintage. And tell me, what are your thoughts of the ricochet? Because that still, to me, it, it that is my childhood. Looking at the ricochet yeah. and dreaming of having one. How? And I, I've got I've got one now that I bought off a friend, but it's sort of it's been gutted. So I need to sort of put it back together and. It's, it's pretty rough, but but how was the old uh, Southern Sailplanes ricochet to fly? Oh, it was it was magic. It really was, and the the engineering behind it. I was lucky enough to meet Ralph Learmont and, and get to know him quite well. And uh, he's a he's an engineer and he's a perfectionist, and he put the two together and came up with uh, the ricochet. And then and then um, the Eclipse. That's right. Um, 
because I was always searching for improvement and, and uh, performance, um, I very soon fell in love with the Eclipse and had the same, you know, majestic look and, and the higher performance. So, mm. yeah, both those planes were terrific. And did you start competing from an early age or did you wait a bit? No, straight away. Um, I just seemed to have an aptitude for it. Um, the eye-hand coordination was something that came naturally to me. The challenge, because I was always wanting to learn, sort of came to me very quickly. And in the first six months, I won the the most improved um, little award, which was was nice. And then the very next uh, year, I won the Bendigo Grand Champion. Oh, really? What glider yeah, were you flying then? Uh, that was the Big Birdie. Okay. Was that was that bungee launch or winch launch? Yeah, bungee launch, bungee launch. So there was some, um, yeah, bird of times, um, Achilles, cumuluses. Uh, one guy had a ricochet, um, a martini. Yeah. Um, all off the bungee, and then uh, a couple of years, probably the next year we we start to use a winch, but predominantly bungee. I've got a mini martini sitting in a kit. Which is a two meter wingspan version of the Martini, and uh, that's a beautiful looking fuselage. Which one day it will be built, but it's still all sitting there, all the, everything's ready to go to build it. But uh, that's nice. that's on the bucket list. But uh, okay, so yeah, it's it's it, another surprising story that you really got into competing straight away because a lot of people sort of take their time and you know stumble across competition ten years later. Uh, so you, basically, it was just thermaling you were doing there. Thermal competitions, or it was we we did a little F3B, which is a multitask duration, distance, and speed competition. I, I flew my Trident with with that and came second. Oh. Um, but predominantly, just the the thermal the, the thermal challenge just um, had me hooked, and um, yeah, start to do really well straight away. Um, you know, all you really need is the the inclination and the desire to keep learning and um, you can pick it up really easily. And in fact, I've got a couple of friends that are very good pilots now. And when I first met them, um, I won't name names, but they were terrible. <laughs> you know, they had trouble controlling the plane. They had trouble finding thermals, but it's just a practice game. It really is just a practice game. If, if you want to try and improve and if you want to get good, you just need to practice. Um, and you can achieve uh, anything in gliding. Well, it was interesting you say that because I 100% agree. And every time I talk to somebody that's excelled in a category of model flying, that's the recurring theme, the time. And, and um, a man you know well, David Millwood, when I interviewed him, he basically said he gave himself the goals every day he was going to go out and fly his discus launch glider at a local park. And I thought to myself, you can't help but get good if you're flying that often. If you're getting out there and flying in different conditions uh yeah. you're really going to understand what's going on you're going to be in touch with with what works and what doesn't so it, it's true yeah. i think the challenge for a lot of us as we get older and different phases of life is finding the time to get out there um mm. you know how often are you getting out flying nowadays yeah i try and get out uh, at least once a week um uh, work gets in the way a bit but um during the summer summer months when uh, you know you can finish work and there's some available time then uh, I'll nip down to the park you know sometimes I'll get down two or three times a week 
uh, and then we sort of have a competition once a fortnight of some form. So yeah, a, a fair bit of flying. Well, that's what you need. Yeah. That's what you need. Yeah. It's interesting with gliding that uh, gliding is a multifaceted discipline, I call it. It's not just about the flying and learning about the flying. It's also learning about um, the environment and the weather patterns and clouds and thermals and how they operate. Did you have an interest in sort of the weather as well, uh, you know, as you were learning learning to glide and, and competitively? Um. No, not really, actually. Um, it sort of came with the the desire to improve my thermaling. Um, so even now, I find that the, the hardest part of the hobby for me to um, to learn, and it's the area that I've still got the biggest improvement in. Um, I've done a lot of building. Um, I've made a lot of uh, moulded models. I've done a lot of flying, and, and I'm quite... Um, technically good um, and it's that constant um, learning the weather system that, that is the biggest challenge for me. Don't get me wrong, I've learnt a lot and I've really enjoyed it but it's not something that's come easily to me. Yeah, yeah I think it's, again, it's another thing where you've got to put the time in and to, to research and learn off other people. And it's a, I, I did a little bit of sort of research around it because you know, I wanted to understand thermals better and that kind of thing. And really we, when you get into it, you open up a can of worms and, uh, you know, you go to YouTube and have a look at some videos of Joe Wirtz getting a lift from, you know, hardly anything. It's like uh, yeah. it's absolutely yeah. crazy. Right. So I just find everything I could. I watched every Joe Wirtz video, listened to everything he said, um, any, you know, the David Hobbies and the, the Carl Stroutons, just whenever you go to a competition, just just pick people's brains about what they're doing and they're, they're more than um, happy to share their knowledge. That's been the great thing about the hobby is, is if you actually want to learn and you go along and, and join in, there are people that will tell you. There's a lot of people that don't know a lot about it so might not be able to tell you a lot. But if you start flying and joining in with with some of the more competitive guys, you'll find you'll pick up lots and lots of tips. Who were some of the people that really um, helped mentor you through, throughout the years? Well, the, the there were never a lot of um, you know flying in Bendigo. Um, it's a good question. Probably everybody. Um, I was sorry, I was going to answer that question in a different way, but <laughs> pretty much everybody I've run into, um, whether it be the, the guys that I started with at the Bendigo Club, whether it was at Farms when I started flying there, the international magazines that you'd read, um, you know, all, all, all my friends along the way have all helped in some way. Yeah. Um, they're probably too numerous to just sort of mention specific names, but but um, yeah, just just I've I think I've always picked people's brains as I've gone along. That's that's the key. So you pick up a little bit, even from people you you wouldn't expect it from. You know, you talk to someone about you know, a, a, a sport fly, for instance, just had a really good flight, and I'd, I'd even say to them. Oh, what, what did you do that time? I couldn't quite see what you were doing. And they went, 
oh yeah, well I saw this cloud over here and I saw this happening over here and I always go and do this. And you go, oh, I hadn't actually thought of it that way. <laughs> so you um, cherry pick all the little bits of information from all the people along the journey and, and you put them together and you try them yourself. That's That's one of the things, one of the reasons why I love gliding is that it's this never-ending search. You know, you can go and fly aerobatics and um, and love aerobatics, but you can practice, practice, practice. You can master that IMAX sequence and you can nail it. Uh, and yes, there's always room for improvement in, in every flight, but mm. there's this constant um, search of knowledge, really, because as I mentioned earlier, that multi multifaceted sort of view of gliding where it's not just flying the model, um, setting up the model, that kind of thing, but also trying to second guess where where a, where a thermal might be and understanding the environment around you. It's, it's also another thing that I enjoy is just you, it, there's nothing like going for a glide out in the countryside to immerse yourself into the environment. You become mm -hmm. hyper alert to what's going on around you. Like, oh, what was that little breeze? Oh, is that thermal coming through kind of thing? Which generally at the flying field, you're flying a powered model. It's like, uh, yeah, oh, there's a gust. Watch out <laughs> if you're coming to land or something like that. Uh, just on that that knowledge side of things, because I've noticed that, uh, and, and I agree with you, there's there's a lot of aero modelers that are really happy to share their knowledge in the hobby, which is which is great for us. You know, I recently got into jets and went to the jet jet event, and there were plenty of people there to help me, and I was like a sponge, just listening to everything that they had to say because they knew more about it than I did, and who was I to go and question them? Mm. But you're also, um, you know, being very forthcoming with sharing your knowledge around gliding and you've got a YouTube channel and I've been on the YouTube channel and I had a look at, you know, your tutorials on how to do a, a discus launch with your DLG kind of thing, you know, stuff like that. And they're actually really good videos uh, that, you know, there's an example of how I've gone to your videos to, to try to help me to understand the technique of launching a, a DLG. Mm -hmm. How did that, what, what drove you to, to want to, to share that knowledge? Uh, two things. One, one is that um, my friends call me the frustrated teacher because I genuinely like to teach people. Um, and that comes really from the fact that this is a relatively small hobby and aeromodelling is dying. And the more that you can teach people and the more you get people enthused about the hobby, then the greater the, the chance of the hobby surviving is. So I sort of take this holistic sort of approach is like aeromodeling's been so great to me i want to put something back into it to make sure that it's great for people in the future um and, and the second part of it is that i quickly realized that being competitive that the people around me that i fly with um, either locally or here in australia are, are not the ones that i really want to beat i, I want to be be winning on the world stage. And so when I would go flying with, with friends and, and uh, local competitors, I was very happy to, to um, share my knowledge because it made them better. And then when they were better, it made me better. If you go out flying and you're just beating everyone all the time, then you're not learning, you're not improving. But if you go out there and, and everybody's improving, then it pushes you along. Um, you know, and Dave Millwood's a classic uh, example of, of where the two of us hooked up and did a lot of flying together. 
and he taught me heaps and I taught him heaps. And we've built our um, skill level up to such a level that's very, very similar. And, um, and we're really pushing each other along. That. Um, in, a, in a really big way. I think that's part of the challenge of, of living in Australia in a small country in a, in a, like Australia and with a sort of rel- very, very small sort of error modelling community and then the subcategories like DLG where there's hardly anybody really competing and that kind of stuff is that we don't have uh, we, we don't have the number of people to, be, to, to build up the excellence in a kind of way and to, to mentor us. And, um, mm-hmm. and you're right, we need people like yourself passing on that knowledge I, I one thing i'm really scared of as the hobby declines and it, look it may turn around you know cross, cross my fingers i hope it does but but uh, you know and i know that it's going to take effort and people like yourself and myself you know putting content out there to, to motivate people um mm-hmm. to try to, to try to shift the tide and then if the moon's aligned then something might happen you mentioned the international scene and I, I know that you've represented Australia uh, numerous times now. Uh, what what is your history in competing on the international stage? When did it all start? Yeah, I um, I sort of got to an age where um, I had a little bit more free time. I've always wanted to go to world championships, and um, hand launch came along, uh, which really interested me, um, and so dived right into it, and and. I, well, I'd always wanted to go to a world championships and, and hand launch was uh, was the one I, I wanted to go to. And uh, so I went to the 2011 world championships as the team manager. I sort of came on to the scene a little bit too late to actually go to the selection trial and loved it. And from there I was hooked. So I did the 2013 world champs, the 2015 uh, and 17. So I've uh, been to four hand launch world championships, um, one as a team manager, three as a pilot, and then um, I went to the first F5J world championship in 2019. Okay. So that's, that's heaps. Uh, yeah. I like the idea of going to a discus launch um, uh, world championships because I just think it's easy to carry your model than some of these guys that <laughs> take these massive scale models and stuff across the other side of the world. but. But I, yeah. I, I followed the last time uh, you guys competed overseas in the World Champs and I was following it from afar from here and just thought, ah, oh, wouldn't that be good? You know, the oh, sight yeah. of all those, all the competitors launching at the same time and, you know, and the thing I like about Discus Launch, which is something that, you know, you're very accomplished at, is almost the athletic side of it as well. So, you know, yeah. you've got to put the runners on and, and, and practice your throw and make sure you can get some height off it. And then... Like discus launch, when you think about it, I, I, it's probably more complex than F5J with the different tasks that you need to do and and sort of yeah. kind of master. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I love a I love a discus launch thing. Um, oh, yeah. And how long had you been doing that? Were you involved in discus launch from the early days, or is it a more recent thing? Uh, no, I, I started with um, a javelin launch glider back in two thousand. Um, I actually. What got me going is I actually hand-launched a two-metre Southern Sail Plains Prelude, which is a relatively heavy two-metre beginner-type model, and I'd throw it around in the park, and then one day I caught a thermal and circled off, and it was the biggest buzz ever. Oh, that'd be great. You know, just 
you and your plane and nature, mm. you know, and it's you against nature and and that's what got me hooked on hand watch. And then I did javelin for um, probably three or four years on and off. But back then it was really hard to get any success. You know, your javelin launch to about 20 metres with a 500-gram 1.5-metre model and you'd be on the ground in about 45 seconds flat. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it was sort of very checkered to begin with. I was flying um, open thermal at, at that time and there was the F3J worlds. But for some reason, the F3J side of it didn't quite push my buttons. Um, and, and it was also a time when um, I had a young son and couldn't put the effort into it either. So, um, and it was then that, that uh, Discus launch came on the scene, probably 2009, when it actually started in the US where a guy that that had um, a shoulder injury, couldn't actually launch over his head like a javelin. And so his mate said, I'll oh, grab it by the by the tip and, and throw it. And he sort of did a half throw. And then all of a sudden people saw it and went, oh, hang on, he's getting as high as a javelin launch just by giving it a flick with the, with the tip. And and that's how it all started. And then you know, we were putting pegs in, in models and... and and then there was very quickly a world championship. And by then I had a little bit more time to put into the hobby and, and away I went. I didn't know that history. So you learn something new every day. But uh yeah, I didn't I didn't know that. And the um yeah, the discus launch thing is just it's to me it's just this raw thing. It's just you, you, you put the you put the glider in the car and attack a transmitter and that's about it. <laughs> You're off. Yeah. And you know, I, I keep it built put, I've got a, a couple of different DLGs, one I haven't flown yet, but one, uh, a little, I've got a one meter wingspan Tomahawk aviation slingshot and uh, I keep it up at my holiday house and you sometimes just go say, well, I'm just going to go for a quick throw of the, of the glider and you can't get, I haven't never had a great flight with it, um, but I don't care if I, like my aim is to crack a two minute flight with it, right? If I crack mm -hmm. a two minute flight, I'm over the moon. Yep. I set myself a target, depending on the day that I'm flying, I set myself a goal and I set the timer. Every time I launch, I press a button and it starts the timer. And and that challenge is just seeing. And it's almost addictive. You just grab it, go again, grab it, go again, grab it, go again. And the battery lasts for hours. There's hardly any battery use yeah. kind of thing. Uh, and um, so, yeah, it's it's and it's funny. If, if people see Discus launch, uh, say, at a, at a normal flying club, a lot of people get really interested in it and think, oh, this is something that I want to try. I've heard of so many people that are, you know, went and got a discus launch glider after seeing somebody else fly it down at the field. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just, yeah, that rawness of it, I, I really love. And it's interesting what you said about the F3J. I, I'm a bit like you. I, the concept of using winch launch and stuff like that just sounds a bit too cumbersome for me. And that's just me. I'm not having a go mm -hmm. at it, but it's just, I think, mm -hmm. oh, now I've got to carry this winch and the lines and, you know, set it all up and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, well, yeah. And we're seeing that, I think, now with the shift towards F5J with the electric launch that um, it's just, I think, going to attract a lot of people to it, even mm -hmm. though it's probably not as raw as what F3J is. But I think that that ease of use and launch is something that mm. that appeals to everyone. Um, yeah, it does. The, the ease of launch, absolutely. And also it's a more challenging uh, actual event um, from a thermal perspective and and that's um, 
and that's the bit I love. So F3J for me was there were a lot of flights where you could get in 10 minutes pretty easily. And so it came down to how well you could land um, and, and what the time was that you landed at. So the event was being decided, you know, not all the time, but a lot of the time by, you know, that, that 200 millimetres of landing and the one or two seconds of time. But F5J and, and hand launch are, I believe, more pure thermal events. So in hand launch, you've got to catch your thermals. You've got to be able to read the air. You've got to be able to do the tasks. You've got to be able to thermal from, from low down. Um, and, and it rewards you. And 5J is exactly the same. The better you can read the air, then the lower you'll launch and the more points you get, and then the more successful the, the thermal flight is. And so they both put an emphasis on the, the thermal inside of it as opposed to the technical side of it. And that's probably the best way for me to try and describe why three, um, sorry, 3K and 5J push my buttons, but 3J not so much. Yeah, no, that's a very valid uh, argument right there. You know, it's, mm. You add that motor and that, that limited runtime that you got with um, F5J mm. really adds another dimension to to the flight yeah. you know i've got an f5j model that i've got a maiden and i look at the tiny battery that i got in it and i think well gee that's not gonna last long and i think well wait a second i'm only running the motor for no more than 30 seconds so you know yeah. it should last for, for, for plenty of time to get a thermal but i also like yeah. i like that um the concept with i was thinking about this the other day when i was down at the, my local flying field and there's a, a couple of avid uh aero towers that were there and uh and with some beautiful scale models, which which I love some of the scale models. And mm. and then I, I thought, you know, okay, they're getting some lift, or maybe not so much lift depending on the day, but um, by having that 10-minute task with an F5J competition, it gives you another dimension in glowing that there's a time limit. There's a goal that you need to keep it up in the air for 10 minutes, but there's also a goal that you've got to get it down in the 10 minutes and and, and that spot landing. And then you get to go and try it again. Um, where, like, good example is slope soaring. That I, I like. I love the concept of slope soaring. Uh, but after twenty five minutes of going up and down a slope, I start to to, to fall asleep a bit. If I had mm. a task with a goal, I'd probably get more excited about it. And that's what I like about F five J. That it's gliding with the task. Even if I'm if, even if I'm if I'm going to fly my F five J, I'm setting mm -hmm. the time at a ten minutes to see uh, how I go. That's what I'm practicing, flying for 10 minutes mm. and bring it down in 10 minutes, not let's see if I can do an hour-long flight kind of thing. Uh, yeah. I may be tempted, though, once you know, get a good thermal, you don't want to get out of it. But uh, Well, I see this is every 10 minutes, you've got yourself a new challenge. That, well, that's what I liked, and I've mentioned this before in this podcast, when I went to the VARMS um, club and they ran the ALES uh, competition, the uh, what is it, Altitude Limited Electric Soaring. And yep. they had, on the day, it was sort of a pretty cold day. There wasn't a lot of lift around, so they had a five-minute task, which meant you were getting up in the air. They had two two groups of uh, of pilots. So every, you know, five minutes, five, say six, make, make it eight minutes, right, When once people launched and got set up for the next round, you were back up there. And you may have had the worst flight, but... In eight minutes' time, you're gonna to have to you get another go to redeem yourself, kind of thing. 
And so I, I really, I really, really enjoyed that competition because the other side of it I liked as well with a lot of these competitions that you do it with a buddy in a kind of way. You know, sometimes there's someone spotting you or, or timing you and that kind of thing. And so you work and you have this banter with this other person who's keeping you informed of your time and that kind of thing. And sometimes, you you know, you compare notes and what to do and that kind of thing. And so it's 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 almost like a team effort in a kind of way, but you know, he's helping you, then you help him and 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 so on and so on and around it goes for, you know, 10 rounds and that kind of thing. So um that's why I want to come out and have a fly with you guys out at Diggles Rest there when 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 the weather we get some good gliding weather. Yep. Uh, no, you're very welcome. I know. I I'm, I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna come and I'm gonna bring all my gliders and we're gonna have a crack and you're gonna I'm gonna learn something because I really need to improve. Yeah. You can find the details on, um, we've got a website, which is the RCGA website, which is the Radio Control Gliding Association. And you uh, find a calendar of events there and um, anyone's welcome to come along and join in. Well, that's one good thing here in Australia is that we have a relatively healthy bunch of pilots that are really keen on flying gliders. So, you know, mm-hmm. we see the likes of Mike O'Reilly really pushing the hobby through South Australia and that kind of stuff that there's they're a passionate bunch that are always welcome to have newcomers of course but you know it it the websites that that the gliding community has are always some of the best like they, they do a really good job with that it's it's surprising they've got events like jewelry which you know is on the bucket list for many many competitive glider pilots which i, I think was cancelled this year wasn't it because of uh because the whole COVID lockdown. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah, it got postponed, but it's just been cancelled again, unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I've been keeping an eye on it. Uh, and I, um, you know, the amount of times I've gone into Google Maps to work out how long it'll take me to drive to Drilldry, I, I can't. I can't you know, I've done it so many times ago. <laughs> well, it's not that far, actually. It's, I think it's five five hours or something, five or six, or just across the border kind of thing. So it's not too, too far away. Uh, now, let's get into some nitty gritty about uh, gliding tips because it's something that I like to do when I've got, you know, accomplished pilots on the podcast. And so we're going to concentrate on F5J, which is the electric launch gliding. Uh, and really want to just get sort of into your brain as to how you operate in different circumstances, right? So the first one being is your mindset. You know, is there one key key thing that you're trying to do with gliding? One one key success factor when it comes to one of your flights? Well, I might, I might break that down into my biggest tip for anyone that wants to improve their, their gliding um, is a general one that anyone can apply. And that is that you need to think of a thermal as a vacuum cleaner. And that vacuum cleaner will suck into it the air around it at the ground level. And so if you've got a streamer on the end of your antenna, and what I actually do is I've actually got a fake antenna. So I'll make up a, um, uh, like a three or 400 mil long uh, carbon rod with an, a, a, just a bit of um, DAT tape or, or something on it to, to create a streamer. And that is by far your number one thermal finding uh, device on the entire field. Wherever that, if you've got a calm day, wherever that streamer is pointing, it is basically pointing towards the left. Um, when it gets a little bit windy, it's a little bit difficult or more difficult, but 
the concept still applies. You basically just follow the changes in the wind um, because that thermal stuck in the airing and it will pull the air towards the thermal. So that's that's my number one tip for everybody out there. Um, go out there, follow the streamer, and you'll get a much more successful uh, thermal flight out of it. Okay, so just to recap on that, and I have been told this before, and I do have my carbon rod ready, and I do have my bit of tape material ready to go. Yep. So it works very well on a calm day because that's where, you know, you're not going to have the effect of the, the, the wind. Uh, so my uh, the, the, the streamer that is waving away from my little antenna is pointing to where the thermal is? Correct. So the tip of the streamer going away from the little an the antenna is where yep. the uh, the direction of the thermal. Yeah, correct. So the, the way the wind is blowing. Okay. So the wind direction and your streamer are the same. Uh, that makes so sense. So if your streamer, let's say you're standing on the flight line, you've got your transmitter in front of you and the streamer is coming and pointing straight back over your head. Okay, when there's a thermal over on the right-hand side, that streamer will move towards the right-hand side. You basically point towards where the thermal is. If the if the streamer all of a sudden does 180 and is pointing directly upwind, then you know the thermal is directly upwind. Okay. It's amazing that that's allowed in competition, which it always has been. Yep. Well, see, then, then what you can do is... And a more complex level, you can start to watch the trees, you can start to watch the grass, you can start to watch other flags that might be flying, you can start to watch um, uh, little bits of fluff that are that are floating around in the air. Um, there's all kinds of different indicators that might that might tell you whereabouts the thermal is, and and also where the base of the thermal is is because all the wind is coming into the thermal. You get an increase in the in the wind at the bottom of the thermal, and so what that means is that if you're watching a bunch of trees and they're all calm, and then all of a sudden an area of the trees get windy, that windy area is actually your thermal area. Ah, that's a really good tip. You know? That's a all really, really good tip. Coming into the, the thermal, and so you get this increase in velocity. And you can feel it when you're standing on the flight line. You get this sort of might go calm because the thermal's in front of you, right? So the wind might actually point upwind. And then as it comes towards you, you'll feel it maybe go uh, calm. And then as the thermal's passing you, you can feel the wind increase in speed. And where that transition is between going calm to windy is often where the thermal is. Okay? And, and so that's what you can practice. And that's where DLG is fantastic. Um, as Joe Wirtz says, and, and really to answer one of your earlier questions, he would probably be my biggest mentor over the years. Um, Joe has shared a massive amount of his knowledge, a massive amount of his information, He's put out videos, he's come and given talks, um, and has shared and shared his information, and it's been fantastic. If you can find every single piece of Joe Wirtz information off the web and read it, you'll become a much better pilot. He's really good. And so what you know, he he talks about um, this concept as well. 
and um, and feeling the changes of the of the window on you know, on, on your body. You have to really just be aware of your surroundings, don't you, to really to to to, to fly at that level. That you know, your your mind is constantly on the go, looking for signs, isn't it? Really, it is, and it's a concentration thing, and it's at the point where you the second part of your question was from a competition point of view. What's my mindset? And my mindset. Um, oh, here's a little way to put it. It's like okay, how do I want to win the competition? Then I need to win this flight. And how am I going to win this flight? I need to find where the thermal is. And how am I going to find where the thermal is? I'm going to be paying attention and concentrating. And it's like if you concentrate on the inputs, then the outputs look after themselves. So when I started to, to compete, you'd start to think, oh, I'm, I'm doing really well. You know, oh, I just need one more really good flight. You know, and if you stand up on the flight line and you're going, oh, I just need one more really good flight. Oh, I just need one more really good flight. Y- your mind is 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 filled with all these uh, expectations, and your mind's not filled with what's really important. And and so early in my competition days, I've realised that hang on, this is no good. How can I break this um, this thought? Most competitive people have the same issue, be it a sports person, an aero modeler, or anything you do. And so I had this little saying, and I would keep saying it. I'd be like, no, stop thinking about that. How are you going to win? Find the thermal, win this, this task. How are you going to win the task? Find the thermal. Okay, whereabouts are the thermals? And it actually took me quite a long period of time to get my head in the right space, and then once it clicked, then then I that's when my competition success really took over. So I'm thinking about you know five minutes before the flight, you know what's the cycle been doing? You know there's a couple more advanced concepts here, but but I'll run through them anyway. You know whereabouts are we in the day? Are we early in the day where the where the air is going to be light? Are we in the middle of the day? When the, the uh, thermals are going to be big, are we late in the day where the the air is dying off? You know that that sort of tells me generically how aggressive I want to be, and then I'll be like, okay, how fast are the cycles coming through? We've got a five minute thermal cycle, a three minute thermal cycle, is it you know ten minute thermal cycles? And that will depend. That will help me determine how aggressive I want to be. And then with five minutes to go before the event, I'm trying not to talk to all everybody and have the distractions. I'll find a point where I'll go out and I'll just be feeling the air and I'll be watching. Did, it, did the thermal just go through the right-hand side? The cycle's currently three minutes. You know, this is what the clouds are doing. The sun's being a bit more overcast. Which way is the, the wind blowing at this particular time? And so you take all these inputs. And over time, you, you you add in more and more inputs. And the more information you've got, then then the better your decision-making is. So by the time the, the buzzer goes and you're in the flight line, I've got a very good mental picture of of what the surrounding air looks, looks like. And, and that's very much come from listening to a lot of the top pilots and the Joe Wirtz in particular. He talks about iterating the air and 
and where you are in the cycle and uh, having the, the whole picture. So you need the big picture, you need the medium medium picture, and then you need the immediate picture. Um, and then, once just to, to finish off the picture, is that your plane also has the, these, um, this wind effect on it. Um, so you're watching the plane. Is the plane actually accelerating? Is the plane moving right or left or, or, or having difficulty penetrating? That will also tell you around the plane where the thermal is. And then you add in the, the clouds and the birds and the, the, um, the grass and what the trees are doing. And once you've sort of got it all together, you'll, you'll find that there are a lot of indicators that will help you have a successful thermal flight. I know there's a lot in there, but I would put it out there to, to sort of give you a, a, an idea of what my mindset is and, and how I'm thinking about thermal. That was a beautiful explanation. And I think even for me, as I was listening to you talk, it's the what you're talking about is the same in say business where you know I find that in, in the work that I do with marketing and that kind of thing is that there's a lot of people have got an ideal of we want to sell more of these widgets mm-hmm. but there's nothing yeah. after that there's there's no other thought about it about okay so to sell those widgets what we do I often say to my customers at one end we've got this ideal of wanting to sell the widgets right. And on the other end is selling the widgets. And in between is a whole bunch of things that you need to do. And it's the same with a glider flight, as, as, as you've talked about, is that there is an outcome that you're trying to achieve, but you're here at the moment. Now, what do I need to do? What are those things that I need to do along that path to get to that that goal? And mm. uh, it just makes, you know, when you, when you break things down like that, that's how you solve problems. And... The, the the problem with the gliding is oh, how do I get this thing up in the air? I you know, uh, so it makes it's, it's a beautiful explanation. I'm so glad you did it because that's the kind of goal that I'm looking to give to the audience. That you know, because to me, there's a lot of people I think that go gliding and and it's sheer luck. You know, launch the glider, hope that you find a, a thermal, and if you do, all well and good. Uh, but when it gets to competition, which is it's that knowledge that I'm hungry for is how do I keep this thing up and not just base it on sheer luck. And it's a question that I asked Mike mm. O'Reilly when I interviewed him is, you know, is it sheer luck or, you know, is it by design that you're keeping the, keeping the glider glider in the air? And he said, well, mm. sometimes it's a bit of both, but um, you can, you know, maximise a flight by, you know, really being in touch with, with, with what's going on. The penny drop when Daryl Perkins won four F3B World Championships in a row in the 90s. Right, and he'd won two in a row, and I was talking to a friend of mine, he goes, geez, he must have been lucky. And yeah. I went, maybe he's just good. Yeah. No, no, no. No one can be that lucky. Yeah. And then he, he went on and won two more, and he won four in a row. Yeah, and, that's amazing. And, the, and then at the same time, there was a lot of discussion around, um, in one in the 90s, remember it, about search patterns. Right, whether you, you search to the right or you do a circle around yourself or you, you go downwind or whatever you do. And they interviewed a number of different pilots, you know, about these search patterns. And, and some top US pilot said this and another top pilot said that. And oh, I'll go this way. And they asked Daryl Perkins and they said, Oh, what, what do you use for a search pattern? And he goes, I don't have one. He goes, Well, how do you find lift? He said, 
I go there. <laughs> you know, and, and that's when the penny dropped that this isn't just a random, you know, luck event. Yeah. It's about you have all these inputs, and if you want to learn all these inputs and practice them, you can get very good at them. You know, like I've had 25 successful competition flights in a row without dropping a single flight. And I don't say that like from a bragging point of view. It's like if you practice hard enough and you get good enough, you can get a very good mental picture of where the thermals are on the field. Mm. Now, there was a term that you used earlier on, which I want to get a bit more of a definition around, which is you were saying how aggressive I fly um, or how aggressive I need to be. What does that mean when you, when you use the term aggressive? Yeah, so that's two things. One is if you're flying F5J, how high do I want to be? And the other one is depending where you are in the cycle of, of the thermals coming through the field or how often the, the thermals are coming through the field, will determine how aggressive you need to be to chase those thermals. So I can give you some examples. So if if we're in the middle of the day and there's lots of thermals and we're not very far apart, then I know that I can get to a thermal really quickly or I can find one nearby. And if I don't find one, I know that I'll be able to find one within a short period of time. So therefore, I'll stand on the flight line in my F5J event and go, okay, I think I need to be at about 40 to 50 metres here because from that height, I'll be able to find a thermal. There's an there's a extremely good chance I'll be able to find one. And so I'll be aggressive and launch low. Other people who haven't been thinking about what the air is doing or, or how aggressive they want to be may still go to the full 200 metres and then it gives you an advantage. The second scenario is, again, all based on the thermals. Um, if, if you're in the middle of the day and you've got really big thermals, but there's only a thermal every 10 minutes, okay, and I'm standing on the flight line and this thermal has gone through one minute ago and I'm thinking, geez, I've got nine minutes before another thermal is going to come through then I need to be aggressive and chase that thermal. So the buzzer might go, the thermal might be 500 metres downwind by this stage, but I'll still make the decision that I need to go and chase that thermal. So I'll be straight off, turn, flat chat, motor on, full bore, and I'll be heading downwind and, and then going to uh, maybe quite high, I'll go to the full 200 metres to give me a chance to find that air. The thermal will be bigger then. I've been aggressive, I'll be off and, and chasing that thermal. And then most of the time you turn around and you'll see the rest of the field has all gone upwind and they're all just in sync. And they might all be down in, in four or five minutes. And so being aggressive in that scenario is, is the way to win that um, particular flight. Yeah, it's, it's very, you know, it's very calculated aggressiveness in a kind of way that it's not just, hey, let's just try my luck. I'm just going to launch low and see what happens. It's 
no, I can launch low because I know that the thermal cycle is going to be okay and I'll be able to find some lift, so I'll be okay. So it's um, there's still a lot of thinking behind that. True. And, you know, a lot of people see uh, events in Europe and they go, wow, they're all launching to 50 metres and 40 metres and 30 metres. Why aren't we doing that here? You know, and we're at Gerildery in the middle of winter and the thermals are really poor. Um, and so you have to base your aggressiveness on the on the weather conditions. Yeah. Uh, successful F5J is about the better you can assess the conditions, then the better chance you've got of, of selecting the right height to be at and having a successful flight. Um, you just can't push. If there is no lift and it's and it's all very light, you just can't do 40 and 50 metre um, launches. You know, you've just got to, you know, you, you, you can't make something out of nothing. Um, so that judgment is what F5J is all about. Just talking about that and the different different um, different seasons to fly in. I always enjoy flying gliders on a on a warm day. You know, a, a, a nice t shirt weather kind of day is, is my <laughs> ideal. But you know, where we live in Melbourne, we don't have that luxury of being able to pick and choose when when there's going to be t shirt weather. Especially as we currently sit, it's pretty cold outside. When it comes yeah. to to gliding in in, in winter, you know. How challenging do you find it? Mm. Well, really challenging, really challenging. And, and I often enjoy going out on a on a difficult, cold, wintry day um, because it throws up up challenges. Um, and and that's an area that um, that you want to always be improving in in a comp- in the competition scene. Um, you know, when the conditions are good, a lot of people can do really well. When the conditions are really poor, that's when you can get an advantage. And there's a lot to be learned about flying your plane, not just from a thermal point of view, but from a setup point of view as well. Um, setting your plane up well to fly in windy, difficult, low lift conditions can be quite quite different from setting your plane up in, in nice, bubbly, um, lifty, sunny days. Um, so I learned that actually at the 2013, 20, sorry, 2017 World Championships, we'd had lovely conditions the entire time and um, I had my plane set up for those conditions and I was doing really well looking at a fly-off spot in the very last round of the competition um, got really, really, really windy. It got extremely windy and extremely difficult. and. Um, I unfortunately lost some of my ballast from um, had fallen out of my pocket and I was a bit underprepared and um, I didn't make the necessary changes to my plane that, that I wanted to. I thought I'd be all right and um, it was the very last round of the World Championships, uh, the preliminaries, and uh, I just got caned. And uh, that was the moment where I, where I went, you know what, I've got to be gotta be better at, at being able to change uh settings faster for the for the windy conditions. Yeah, I'll never forget that one unfortunately. Yeah, that's the challenge of gliding though, you know, that variable conditions, you never know what you're gonna get and then like you said in a in a multi day competition and it just yeah, can ruin, just ruin everything. Okay, so let's just talk about, um, you, you covered a little bit about launching with your F5J and what you're looking for. 
And it sounds like what you're really looking for is the thermal. You're looking for the thermal and you're launching towards that thermal and then picking the height that you need to launch at. Yeah, yeah correct. And there's a few subtleties within that. Um, so there's a couple of techniques where if the conditions are, are good, you might um, race out at full power, very low, and try and find the thermal at a very low height. And if you don't find it, there's enough time in the 30 second window because you've gone out to that spot very fast where you might have a second book. You might move your circle or you might spot someone thermal in another, in another part of the sky. And so you've got enough power um, and speed to be able to race over and try that, that second spot. And then there might be still five or six seconds left and then you go, you know what, this isn't working low down. You can then give it a blip for five or six seconds and blast up some extra height. All right. And, and so that's a strategy that can, can give you a bit of an advantage. You know, if you hit the, the first thermal or the second thermal while you're still low down, then you'd be switching off and, and then you're away and you've got an advantage over someone who's just gone to a preset height. Um, there's other techniques in the wind where um, if the lift conditions are low, where you might want to um, belt out at full power uh, well upwind. Um, and then that gives you some more chances then to, to search out to the sides in the wind um, with a few more opportunities. If the lift's low, you can take some circles and you're circling back towards yourself and you're not too far downwind. That's another strategy. And then if the conditions are extremely calm, it's good to know how long your motor is, your motor run is for the height that you want to get to. So for instance, you might have a setting, another switch on your transmitter where you know uh, at that particular speed that 23 seconds of motor run will get you to 200 meters of altitude. And so you look at the, the calm conditions and go, okay, in these conditions with my plane, I want to be at 150 meters. And so therefore you're going to run 18 seconds of, of motor run, for instance, switch off. And you can get quite accurate at judging your heights um, based on your motor run when the lift is, is relatively low. Yeah. If you try and do that strategy when it's very active, you can very quickly find yourself you know, plus or minus 40 or 50 metres over or under the, the height you thought you were going to be at. So I suppose in that launch phase, you're, you're observing the, the attitude of the plane, you know, the glider to, 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 to see whether you're in a thermal. Because how do, you, how do you know whether you're in a thermal as you're launching or not? Because to me, it's, you know, I'm putting the nose up, I'm under power, I'm going up. What are you looking mm -hmm. for? Yeah, you can see the, the whole plane move up and down. Um, lift, lift will affect the entire plane and not necessarily make the plane pitch up or down. And so I try to fly as, as flat as I can um, at a speed uh, that I'm familiar with. Um, and it actually came from, um, from hand launch where there was a task we had to do two four-minute flights in a 10-minute window. 
So you'd finish the first four minute flight, but you had two minutes to go looking for lift. And so what you do with your, your DLG is if you had good height, you would dive down to about probably 100 meters high, and then you would fly flat out as fast as you could right around the entire field looking for lift. And what you learned to do is that you could see the, the plane, even at the really high speed, the whole plane takes a little uh, step upwards and a little step downwards. But the pitch of the plane didn't change at all. And you'd be able to pick that that's where the lift was. That's a really good tip. Because yeah. we often hear about, you know, a wing being bumped and that kind of thing. But uh, that concept of the whole plane moving up really allows you to distinguish what's happening to, 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 to the aircraft. Yeah, and that's a good thermaling tip too. If, if you're... You're just generally out thermaling and, and the nose pitches up. Uh, a lot of beginners will think, oh, I've got a bit of lift. Um, or, or if, you know, the plane gets kicked one way or the other, um, it might just be some turbulence. What you're looking for is the entire aircraft, like the wings and the tail all moving up together. Or conversely, if you're in sync, they're all moving down together. And if you get a kick to the, to the side, you're looking for a kick to the side and you're looking for the plane to lift, like bodily lift okay, as well. Um, and that's how you can tell the difference between just a gust or, or a thermal. That's another good tip. So, yeah. You know, if you do get that, that wing tip, you know, mm. bump, look for the fuselage as well to make sure the whole thing's bumped up kind of thing. It's not just that wing tip. Okay. Yep. Gee, I'm learning and a lot. And if the lift is really good, you can actually see the tail lift mm. because the center of gravity of the, the model is on the wing, which is, which is where the wing, where the model pivots about. If you've got very good lift, you can actually see the tail go up. So as you're flying along, the tail will go up. The plane will actually speed up a little bit. And then that's another indicator that you're in lift. Um, from a more scientific point of view, it's a combination of kinetic energy and potential energy. Um, so for anyone that can sort of get their head around that, it's a very good concept. So kinetic energy is the speed of the plane and the potential energy is the height of the plane. And, and full-size gliders use this um, in uh, you know, all the varios that, that you've got. But you can basically create a, a vario yourself from, from those two things that I've just described, where um, yeah, the, the, the kick to the side, right? the velocity of the plane hasn't increased, but has the height of the plane increased? So speed is the kinetic energy and the, um, the height is the potential energy. So the energy of the plane has increased as a whole um, from from the kick to the side and the plane lifting. Um, and so you can sort of apply that as well. Like if you're flying along and the tail goes up and you start speeding up, but the plane's not moving up or down, right? So the height of the plane stays the same. So the potential energy is the same, but the velocity is increased. Then that's the kinetic energy. So so something's given the plane some additional energy, which is the thermal. Makes a lot of sense. And the way you're describing it is really easy to understand, which I like. 
So, so thank you. You're doing a great job. Okay, yeah. let's let's move forward now. That one of those other challenges is you've got a ten minute thermal task. You know, you're up in the air. The conditions aren't that great. You're running behind time. You're trying to stretch out that flight. Are you looking for lift or are you trying to maximize the glide? What's that tipping point where you go, okay, I'm not finding any lift here. You know, what, what, what what's your next strategy? Yeah. yeah, I have, I have a distance versus height ratio in, in my head from, from flying the plane. And I know what effectively my final glide angle is. And, and so the height above that final glide point, is effectively how much room I've got to play. Um, so I will I will continue to play as, and work as hard as I possibly can until I hit that final glide point. Um, and then and then you you're basically on the final final glide home. And, and you may get some lift on the way. Um, so you're always just assessing what the climb rate of the plane is versus the distance you're going. So you might be on the final glide in. You've gone, okay, or well, I've had a look around. I can't find any lift. I'm, I'm now on, on the, the final glide back. And then you're halfway back and you get a bump, right? And, and again, you're looking for that, the whole plane lifting, not, not, a, not a gust or where the, the nose of the plane's pitching up. The whole plane actually uh, rising, and then you might go, oh, and then the time that the plane is rising will indicate how big that lift is. If I just get a little bump, like say quarter of a second, up, down, that thermal's not very big, um, so I'll keep coming, and then all of a sudden you go, oh, this this air is good, and then and then you're like, oh, this is good for a full uh, second. I think there's some air here. Um, so then, then you turn and, and try and circle back in that, that air. And so if it's marginal, I'll be constantly watching how high am I climbing versus how far away am I getting. I may only get two or three turns and then I've decided, no, I need to come back again. So then I'll be back on the final glide and looking for lift on the way back. And they'll be like, oh, there's another bit. Yes, no. And it's just a series of decisions. You know, is it significant enough for me to to, um, to turn? And then how strong is that lift? And I like to keep trying little bits because, you know, you're going quite fast and so you can't tell exactly how strong it is. So you'd be like, oh, there's a bump, turn. No, that was no good. Keep coming. Next one, bump, turn. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Off we go. And then And then you might get away. So... By constantly taking little samples of the of the air as you're coming back, um, you can often get get quite lucky with um, with finding a thermal. And, and and it reminds me of something Joe Wirt said, and it's relevant to um, the discussion all the way through here, which is the practice one. And, and he says with a coy smile, he says, "The more I practice, the luckier I get." Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm one of those believers that anything in life that luck only plays a very small part. And uh, you know, I, I I didn't win the lotto again this week. They gave me the wrong numbers again, but that's sheer luck. Just, you know, 
bobbing for yeah. apples basically. But the uh, but when it comes to what we do with model airplanes, especially in competition, then why is it that the person that puts the most amount of time in generally is what wins the competition? Yeah. Now setting up for landing. So you know it's time. You know the landing phase is an important phase in a lot of these competitions with spot landings. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What are you doing and what are you thinking about when you're setting up for landing? Uh, yeah, two main things. One is um, you want to give yourself a bit like doing a rectangular pattern when you're coming into land. You want to be at certain points at certain times. So I know with, with 30 seconds to go, I want to be at this particular height, 100 metres out to the side, for instance. And then with 25 seconds to go, I'll reassess and I'll, and I'll go, am I, am I, on target, yes or no. A bit more break, a little bit more speed. And then it'll be 20 seconds to go. How am I looking for, for my, my, I guess, three key points, the 30-second mark, the 20-second mark, and the 10-second mark. Mm. And um, and so you've just got a, a, a mental picture. So I used to have a rectangular pattern in open thermal because not everyone was coming in at the same time. And so I just modified it. To a straight-in pattern, where I'll, I'll come in from from a, a long way out, and and just keep assessing, am I on track? Yes, yes or no, and adjust um, my brakes and my speed accordingly. And, and one tip for anyone that's learning how to to land, the main thing you want to do is you don't want to throw the brakes all the way on and all the way off. Because then you've got too much of a change in the pitch of the plane, and, and you can't. Um, it's very difficult for the brain to to get its head around. Oh, I've just stopped. I've lost all this height. I've got to speed up again. I, I like to play between sort of a quarter break and three quarters break, and be more uh, not constantly adjusting, but every couple of seconds going. Do I need a bit more or a bit less? And what you find is if you make the judgment calls uh, quite often in the last 30 seconds, then you've got much, much more chance of, of having a smooth approach. Yeah. And then, and then in the last, um, the last 10 seconds, then it's about um, just making sure you wind up for the spot and, and you're pretty much on target. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's been set up to, to reduce your workload in that last 10 seconds. Well, that brings me to my, to my next question, which is uh, you know, when I was setting up my F5J model, I, you know, I basically went and looked at the, the manufacturer's uh, setup and, and, and replicated that as a starting point. And there's a lot of different settings for landing and speed settings and cruise settings and all this kind of stuff with your different flap you know, settings. How... Mm-hmm. Often, are you changing that flap setting in flight? Uh, yeah, a fair bit, a fair bit. So, um, some people use a slider, but what I find is that the as the brakes come down, you need elevator compensation to maintain the, the speed or, or the attitude of the plane. So, what what I learned um, quite quickly is I've got them on flight mode, so I have uh, six different flight modes programmed into the radio. Um, so it's just, I just fly Free Sky here at Tyrannus, and you can have uh, eight flight modes, which I, I use every one of them, but fundamentally there's 
the six I'll play with in the in the sky. So I guess the biggest tip is for each flat setting, you trim the plane for the speed that you want. And I'll be doing it quite often throughout the, the competition, throughout the, the flight, um, because it varies all the time. Um, so the basic setup is I've got three different flap settings, say a six mil positive flap, a four mil positive flap, and a two mil. Then I've got a, a zero for cruise and a, and a speed. Um, if we stick with those five for now, that's probably the best bet. So I will um, uh, do my launch and without any great indicator of lift, or if I want to sit around, I'll immediately throw into my um, my two mil thermal setting, um, and that gives me a nice balance between conserving height and um, and being um, and giving me a little bit of moving speed. And then I'll decide, oh, I want to I want to race across the other side of the field, so I'll flick into uh, speed mode, which will be a little bit of reflex, and then I will trim the elevator just using the um, the, the trim lever for the for the speed that I want. So if it's particularly windy, I might need a couple of extra clicks of down trim to get the speed I want. Or if it's a light day, I'll be a couple of clicks up to to get the speed that I want to travel at. And I'll very quickly do that. In fact, at the start of the day, I might have a flight, um, you know, for a particular wind, and I'll go through all my modes and set up the trims that I want so that they're roughly in the right spot. And then I'll, I'll be adjusting them as I go throughout the day. So I've, I've zoomed across in, in speed mode. Um, I, I've hit the lift, I'm getting a, a, a flick, uh, sorry, a lift. And then I'm immediately flicking out of the speed mode into maybe four more flat, which is my general thermal mode. And I'll, I'll then hook into the thermal and I'll be trying to maximize my height. And then I'll go, yep, that's good. And then I'll go to my six mil thermal. And go, am I getting a better climb rate with six mil? And often the stronger the thermal is, the more flat you run. Well, sometimes if the thermal's very uh, turbulent, my six mil, I might go, well, that's a bit, bit aggressive, and I'll go back to four, and the plane will settle down or, or, or uh, be a bit nice. Mm. And then I'll be out of that, back into speed mode again, uh, off to the next thermal. Or if I'm on the, the cruise back, I'll be into my, my zero flat setting. So I'm constantly changing the, the flap settings on the plane throughout the flight. I might flick my switches 20, 30, 40 times in a flight to get the plane in that the optimal. It's about optimizing the flap setting for each of the modes that I'm flying in, for the conditions that I'm flying in. Yeah, okay. Well, it sounds complicated, but no, no, it, it's it, 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 it's the same thing with three modes. You've got a thermal, a, a cruise, and a speed mode, and and you just learn to um, apply them appropriately. Yeah, that makes a lot of lot of sense. Now, coming to the model itself, uh, to me, a modern day F five J glider, F three J, F three K discus launch glider, they all look great. You know, they're all carbon fiber molded models, and visually, it's very hard to see what the difference is between many of them. But what are you looking for in a good competition model? What, what differentiates them? Well, 
it's interesting because when we were flying 3J or um, F3K, then there's really only two or three planes that you wanted, you wanted to have. Um, in 3J, it was your Explorer, your Maxer, or your um, Perfection. And in um, um, in F3K, you you either want the the Snipe or the the CX5. You know, they're, they're, they were the two must-have planes. But 5J, um, but mainly because of the 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 no launch requirement and the much lower weight of the planes, um, they're all nearly identical. Um, you can go and buy one of 20 different um, planes that are on the market and they will all perform very, very similarly and you can be very um, successful. The last F5J Worlds showed that. I think there were nine different planes in the top um, 12 fly-off spots at the F5J Worlds. And we're finding it the same here. You, know, you, can, you can get a... a, a um, a plus X, you can get a uh, what I fly a Vinco, you can get a, a neutrino, a sensor, or a sense, uh, you know, the, the list goes on. So, the great thing now is that um, uh, you can basically pick a, a plane that you like um, and go and learn to fly, fly it well. Um, probably the only caveat on that now is, is um, at a competition level, the weight is uh, the key. So Pilots now will have a an extremely light plane. Uh, they'll have a standard weight plane, and they'll have a heavy weight plane. But again, the the very light ones you you're only going to be using in you know five percent of the time, and the very heavy ones, well, you can probably get away with a standard that's that's ballasted. So my recommendation is have a look on the web, find a, a nice competitive plane with a with a good standard strong build with a standard layout and go and learn to fly and you can be very successful with, with that plane so any of the molded planes around 1400 grams 1500 grams you, you're going to be doing great yeah, that's, that's good news for many people now <laughs> you've now actually you know started a a, a business selling uh gliders uh a business called performance models uh, and, and it's relatively new. Tell me a bit about performance models. Well, I, I'd always um, uh, loved my hobby, and I dabbled a couple of times in trying to build and sell uh, planes through the early two thousands. Um, and you know, never, you know, I just sort of dabbled in, in it a little bit, and sort of always had the, the thought process. And it was actually the the COVID lockdown where I had five or six weeks. Um, off work, um, we were all um, effectively put off. We we're on JobKeeper, and I thought, well, how can I, um, how can I do this? And I could either go and get another job and just just earn some money, or put some effort into to building a business. And, and two things had changed. One is I had access to a laser cutter, and there were some excellent two meter designs around that were that were balsa and carbon. Um, and the other thing that happened is I had a friend of mine in Spain, um, George Medina, who um, runs Techno Epoxy. He was looking for um, 
somebody to um, help him sell some of his planes. And I'd always loved his, um, his Vinco. And so I said, all right, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to design a laser cut uh, kit and I'm going to um, import the, the Vinco, which is a F5J uh, model, um, which is, like I said before, just as competitive as all the rest. Um, and uh, give it a go. And so I set up a, a website. I spent, oh, I can generally learn things pretty well, but the whole website thing just drove me bananas. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah. People think it's easy. We'll just make an online store and off we go. It's like, yeah, okay, go and do it. Um, anyway, I, I built the store. I designed the laser cut model um, and I had a little bit of a mini launch uh, with that. But before I even launched the website, word of mouth had got out uh, that I had a, a design and it started to sell like hotcakes. Um, it's called the Aussie Res, which is a two meter um, E-Res model, which, which means just rudder, elevator and a spoiler. Um, I applied a lot of the learnings I had. I've done a lot of aero work, um, a lot of experience in, in um, airfoils and designing the planes. And I designed these airfoils to add a little bit more um, easy to fly characteristics to the plane. Um, and it's um, and it's doing really well. We've, we've got a lot of them out there. I think I've, I've now shipped 62 kits in the last uh, seven months. Gee, that's really good. Yeah, yeah, I'm really pleased. Uh, and we came in just at the right time because there was a new class starting uh, up at the same time. And, and so it was a little bit of a perfect storm with the COVID, the design and, and this new class. So um, that was a bit lucky in a way. And then um, I got um, a Vinco in and started to fly it and started to have some competition success and starting to get some orders. And then um, Thomas Lee from Armsaw sends me a message and, go, and goes, oh, I'm looking for a distributor for my, um, for my planes in Australia and New Zealand. Um, are you interested? And um, I thought, why not? We'll give it a go. So all of a sudden I've brought in a whole bunch of kits and, and they're starting to sell as well. So um, so I've got a full-time job and I'm doing this uh, sort of on the side as well. And at the moment, I'm probably doing oh, two or three hours, uh, probably two or three nights a week. Um, so I call it the side, the side hustle. Yeah, no, no. It, it, I think... That's going to happen more and more in the hobby that we'll see passionate people with a bit of knowledge, uh, mm. you know, having these sort of boutique sort of outlets. And, and I like the stuff. I, I like the fact that you've, you've developed mm. this because, you know, like some of the, some of the kits are, are reasonably priced that, that uh, I'm just looking at your website now, that little uh, two meter balsa, the Aussie res. $295. That's a great price for that. That is, that is good. And, you know, and that, no doubt it flies really well. What to finish that off? You need, you know, what uh, three servos, and then yep. what some size? Covering. Sorry, what was that? Yep, some covering. Yeah, a a motor, a speed control, and a battery. What size motor are you putting in that and battery? Yeah, we 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 designed the Aussie Res around allowing people to put anything they like in. So um, the twenty eight millimeter diameter motors and. What we did is we created a, um, a recommended um, list. So I rang all of the hobby shops in Australia, um, excuse me, that, that deal with lighting, 
Hmm. And said, oh, what have you got that meets this criteria? And they all gave me some, some uh, options. And so I made a little spreadsheet. And so you've got five motor options and I've listed the, the different suppliers and, and here's five speed controller options and battery and servo, etc. Um, and so there's quite a lot of um, options to be able to put in the plane to, to make it work. And you can get some Hobby King um, items that, that are really extremely cheap. So um, we've aimed it for um, those that want to compete. Uh, with it and those that um, at the budget end and wanted to learn how to fly. So I, I love that idea. I think that after, as I said, I've done a video on it. It's actually on the Flat Out RC YouTube channel about my visit to Varms and the ALES comp that uh, I just think that so many clubs, if they embraced it, the members mm-hmm. would love it. They'd have such a good time and and moving toward this to this sort of two-metre kind of concept is not a bad thing at all. And so... Um, performancemodels.com.au is the website to go to ladies and gentlemen and i'm telling you i'm having a look now and i'm not just trying to pump your tires up but uh you know even the arm saw gliders and 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 having just more options for for the avid glider to, to choose from especially some of the discus launch um gliders as well if people are looking at getting into them that that uh, you've got some 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 different options there that that won't break the budget as well so um mm-hmm. You know, are you stocking them or are you just ordering them as you as you need, or you know, how are you going about it? Yeah, I I just I originally thought I'm just going to order them as um as the orders come in, but um it changed pretty quickly. Um, and I've got some stocking, so I currently have some stock of um three of the four arm saw options um in stock um to be able to to help supply people. You know, most people ring up and go, oh, what have you got? You know, when can I get it? <laughs> so um, I'm finding that there's enough interest um, uh, and, and I was willing to outlay um, the initial investment um, to, to give people that, that improved service. I'm just having all this little uh, deviant uh, DLG. Is that, has that got ailerons or is it just a two-channel? Uh, it's got ailerons. So the arm store range, there's a one meter hand launch yep. for less than $500. And then you've got the, the BAMP, which is the competitive one and a half meter one. And so you're talking at nearly 1100 for that one. And, and so that gives people two options, you know, uh, at least two different price point options. Uh, still at the, the higher end, you know, we're, we're talking competitive, fully molded, you know, ailerons, Type model, so it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but there's, there's certainly a market there for that. Uh, and then, uh, from the electric point of view, there's a one and a half meter electric, which has been it's not just a DLG that's been modified, it, it's actually got more wing area and a bit more camber in the wing. So, you don't have because you don't have to launch the plane, uh, the, the motor does the job for you. You can then make an airfoil that's got a bit more camber and get a bit more performance. Um, it float around a lot more. Uh, and then there's a one metre version of that as well. So uh, that's a one metre electric and one and a half metre electric. Hmm. Well, there's a good little range there with multiple different options. So uh, good to see performancemodels.com.au, the free plug there, Marcus. Uh, but uh, servicing Australia, Australia and New Zealand? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, excellent. Correct. So I've got some pretty sharp um, uh, sort of... Um, postage prices to, to be able to get them into New Zealand at a reasonable price. Yeah, that's a big challenge when I was selling model planes. It was uh, trying to get them into New Zealand was really a nightmare of expense and whatever. But uh, mm-hmm. 
But anyway, now it sounds like you're pretty committed to the hobby and you can, can continue to uh, compete. Where do you see yourself in 10 years in the hobby? <laughs> World <laughs> champion. Doing the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, for me, it's like I hit on before, you know, you love it um, and uh, and you, you control all the inputs. So if I keep learning and I've still got more learning to do, if I keep learning, if I keep practicing and I keep working hard, then then anything's possible. So I'm hoping to do more F5J World Championships in the future. Um, unfortunately, I've got a back injury that uh, now prevents me from even throwing a, a DLG with even a little bit of um, force, which is a bit disappointing. Um, but um, look, I'm getting almost the same buzz out of the electric versions, where you know six seconds you can be as high as a, a hand launch, and then you you're flying you know, just like a hand launch. So it's not actually that different. But um, yeah, I see myself just just doing doing what I'm doing and, and enjoying the journey. And that's a good thing about gliding. It's a bit like fishing. You can keep on doing it and keep on doing it till, till <laughs> a ripe old age and uh, still have the same amount of fun. Now, to finish off, I've got a question that I ask everybody. It's a signature move that I've got, and that is what has been your favourite model so far? I'm looking for one. It's probably it's probably a hand-launch model called the XX Lite, which is a hand launch that uh, came out with a very high aspect ratio and it was like a mini F3B plane. And when it came out, it was just remarkable um, how well it floated, how fast it went, and it was the best fun I ever had. It was a great time in my life and I had a bunch of these XX lights and they did everything. You could build them up and down on the slope, you could catch a little thermal from, from down low, um, and I went to the one of the world championships and had an absolute ball with it. So, uh, yeah, I got fond memories of the XX light. Okay. Well, that sounds like a good lighter. And it's, it's, it's amazing again, that, uh, it's not always the, the latest and greatest model that people remember the most. It's something that's, you know, from back in the day mm -hmm. that meant something to them because of that particular point in time, you know, in their life and where it yeah, took them yeah. and that kind of stuff. So good to exactly. see. Mm. Well, Marcus, a very big thank you. I really enjoyed that that, that chat with you. I learned a, a lot, which I'm, you know, whenever someone, I talk to someone that knows about gliding, I'm all ears. I'm like a sponge just soaking it up because I, I find it intriguing and I'd love to improve my gliding, flying, my glider flying. And so I'm, we are going to fly. At some point in time, we are going to fly and you're going to give me a few more pointers uh, out there at the field. So a big thank you and, and all the best with performance models. Don't forget everybody, performancemodels.com.au is the place to go to, to have a look at some of these new gliders that uh, Marcus is bringing in and uh, keep up the good work. Yeah, thank you very much and, and thanks for listening to me and I'm glad you got something out of it and I hope everyone that's listening got something out of it as well. So enjoy the hobby. About to leave, already packing, come with me. I'm not really asking, we'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. Big thank you to Marcus Stent. Now, I've got to tell you that if you want to know more about F5J strategies and tactics, Marcus on his YouTube channel has a big presentation, goes about an hour and 13 minutes, a really 
chunky uh, sharing of knowledge, which Marcus enjoys doing. So jump online to YouTube and just search for Marcus Stent, M-A-R-C-U-S space Stent, S-T-E-N-T, and you'll see F5J strategy tactics video there, plus a whole bunch of other videos, including some good videos on launching, how to launch a discus launch glider um, properly, which he can do very, very well. So don't forget to jump online to YouTube and check out Marcus Stent on YouTube and hear more about F5J strategies. So again, thanks, Marcus. Really appreciate you spending the time uh, sharing his knowledge, which I always appreciate. Well, another week gone. Uh, what's up for the next week? Not sure. Won't be getting out to the field next weekend, but I will continue to be thinking about model airplanes on a daily basis. No doubt you are. Don't forget to subscribe to the Flat Out RC podcast and our YouTube channel and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, lots of action going on. So every day of the week, you can get something from Flat Out RC. And tell your friends, get on the Flat Out RC train. Tell them to subscribe to the podcast. The numbers are growing. We're getting more eyes, more ears. Listen to this podcast, help promote aero modeling around the world. So thanks for joining me. And I'll be back next week. Probably be talking scale models next week. Talk then.